Thanks for listening to the Grace First Podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Good morning, church. Morning, we continue our series in Mark chapter 2 this morning. And so if you would like to join me there, uh, you can open up your pew Bibles in front of you, your apps, your personal Bibles. Uh, You can turn to Mark chapter 2. Well, life is full of calculated decisions, right? We make decisions daily about what to wear, where to eat. And this morning, you have to decide what section to sit. And for many of you, that decision is pretty easy since it's kind of a routine for you on Sunday mornings. These are some of the smaller decisions in life, but we also make big decisions which are a little bit more deliberate, and they are life-changing, for their consequences bear with us for the rest of our lives. In the summer of 2008, I made the decision to ask my now wife, April, to marry me. The decision to marry her was a well-thought-out plan, and the decision to how to propose to her was even a more well-thought-out plan. And I had taken her to the west side of the island in Oahu, Hawaii, where we lived at the time. My plan was to have a small picnic, watch the sunset together, and then ask her to marry me in this picture-perfect setting in this paradise island. Now, I didn't know what to do with the engagement ring, so I tied it to my board shorts, and I even triple-knotted it just to make sure that it didn't come off. Soon after we had our picnic, she then asked, should we get in the water? And now, when you have an engagement ring tied to your shorts, the last thing you want to do is lose the ring to the bottom of the ocean. Now, I did not want to get the ring wet nor drop it into the ocean floor. So I had to think of my feet. And so I said, let me test the water. Now, if you've ever swam in the beaches of Hawaii, you probably know that the water is always clear and warm and it is like bath water all year round. And just like I expected, the water felt really warm. And it was like bath water and you could see the ocean floor like an aquarium. So after dipping my foot in the water, I responded just like any honest man with a ring tied to his shorts would. The water is too cold. I'm afraid swimming is not in our plans today. Well, shortly after that, I asked her a series of questions to confirm her commitment to God and to me if we were to marry and serve together. If we got married, there were really more like warnings than questions. It was like, if you were to marry me, you need to know that you're not going to be marrying a rich man because I will be more like preaching like the apostles and Joel Osteen. And if we get married, you must know that we will probably be moving a lot. Uh, Wherever the Lord calls us to go, that's where we'll need to go. After I heard her desire to accept these commitments, I got down on one knee. I struggled for a few minutes to untie the triple knot in the shorts. And in the sunset in Hawaii, I asked her to marry me. Well, 15 years later, after three golden retrievers, three with lovely daughters, whole bunch of teenagers, and six moves later, my calculated decision to marry April has led us to serve God in the ministry together. In so many ways, my decision to marry her has brought me closer to the Lord through the years. 
He has worked in and through our marriage to make me more Christ-like than when we first met. And I thank God that he has blessed our marriage and, and used our marriage to bring us closer to him in our service together. See, we make daily decisions like this, from big to small, from what we will watch to even who we will date and marry someday. And many of our choices will either bring us closer to God or away from God. Sadly, we don't, make always, we don't always make the right decisions, do we? No. See, we all make sinful choices in life that result in guilt. We all make choices that take us away from God and keep us from the presence of the source of the righteousness. Sadly, sin and guilt are issues that, that we experience even as children. When we disobey our parents, what is our immediate response? Our response is to run and hide from their authority. Our disobedience then results in a feeling of guilt and shame. And the last thing we want to do is approach our parental authority and accept the responsibilities for our sin. And much like disobedient children, we as adults, even we, hide from God in our sin. Perhaps this morning, there is guilt in your life from the choices that you have made that is keeping you from approaching God, or you know someone who is very close to you who is struggling with their past sins. Maybe it's a sin from your past that has resulted in guilt to this day, and you wish you can know for certain that your sins are forgiven. Or maybe you're struggling with doubt and uncertainty about whether God is even real. As you try to make sense of the exi existence of God, the assurance of your faith, or how to know what is morally right and wrong in this life. You wish that God can just tell you in person that, child, I am real and your sins are forgiven. Well, this morning, we're going to see in our passage in Mark chapter 2, a story of three calculated, life-changing decisions. And the story is going to reveal to us a truth about who we are, how our decisions affect our relationship with God, and who God is. As we see who Jesus is through this story, I pray that you will find freedom from the guilt of your sins as you commit yourself to draw closer to the presence of Jesus. I pray that you'll know that Jesus is the highest authority who alone can forgive your sins, and he has chosen to come to you this morning through his very word. So turn with me, if you're not there already, to Mark chapter 2. Last week, we saw the ministry of the king and how he prioritized his time in private prayer, in preaching of the word, and personal transformation as he healed the leper. And the result of the beginning of his earthly ministry was seen in the very last verse of chapter 1, and that result was they were coming to him from everywhere. Well, this morning we come to chapter 2, where they are literally coming to him from everywhere. And Jesus cannot catch a break, even in his own house. I, you know, I remember as a child in Korea, celebrating what I remember to be my grandmother's 60th birthday. And that is a big deal in Korea. And we had 
everybody there are cousins or uncles and aunts they were all gathered into this property in their house and it was crowded and and it was really loud even at 3 a.m and i was a child just trying to get get some sleep at 3 a.m and in this in the corner of this room and people in their room were just celebrating loud and i remember complaining to my mom can a six-year-old child get some sleep around here and I imagine that as I could not get away from the loud crowd at this party, Jesus could not get away from the needy crowd throughout his ministry. His reputation preceded him wherever he went. And even in his home, people wanted to get in there because they needed him desperately. So we begin with a scene in his home, or it could have been Peter and Andrew's home where Jesus used their home as uh, the base of his ministry in Capernaum. And in this home, like my grandmother's wild birthday rager, there is no room to be found anywhere. Now, as you read or listen to this story as, we, uh, as I read it along, another subtle but key observation that I want you to realize is that this story was written in the present tense. Now, what does that mean? Well, the effect this tense would have had was a fast-moving and exciting story that would have sounded a bit like watching a documentary. Have you ever watched those animal documentaries? Right, They're usually narrated in the present tense. And it sounds like this. The lion, is, 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 the lion runs to hunt down his prey. The lonely zebra is no match for the lion. But the zebra is not without help. The zebra runs and the chase is on. Well, do you notice the intensity and the excitement of this present tense narrative? Well, it is as if you are watching it in real time. And that is how this passage was written, so that we are to experience this in real time. So with that in mind, let's go to Mark 2, verse 1, 1 through 5. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So here's the scene. Jesus is in his home in Capernaum where he's preaching and teaching the gospel. And in the, in the home, you have the crowd. The place is packed. It is a fire marshal's nightmare. They forget fire codes. There's not even room outside the doors. Now, as he was teaching, notice this was uh, notice this first calculated decision that we see in this passage. We have the decision of the four men who brought their paralyzed friends, uh, friend to get him to Jesus as close as possible. Now, this was, not a, uh, this was a carefully planned mission with alternate plans in place. People don't just wake up one day and, and say out of boredom, you know what we ought to do, fellas? We ought to take Bobby with us and just bring a cut a hole and bring him down the roof. No, this, this, the conversation between the four of them 
likely sounded something like this. Fellas, Jesus of Nazareth is in town, and the word is, he has been miraculously healing people like our friend. If we ever want him healed from his paralysis, this is our chance. We're going to carry him and get him to Jesus, and we're going to do everything we can to get him to him. And if we can't, we're going to find the plan B, and we are going to do whatever we can to make this happen. This is our only hope for Bobby. His name wasn't Bobby. Okay, that's just for the sake of the example. So here is the first calculated, life-changing decision we see in our story. If you're following the sermon outline, we see the decision of the friends. And the decision is to draw closer to Jesus. Is to draw closer to Jesus. They want to bring their friend as close as possible to Jesus, but they, underst- they underestimated the size of this crowd. So they had to go to plan B, which was to do whatever was necessary to bring their friend to Jesus, including breaching a hole in the roof. Now, the roofs of the homes in those days were usually flat and were made of beams and were accessible by stairs of stone. The beams were cross-hatched by smaller poles and sticks, which were then covered with thatch, which was then covered with mud. And this is why you have the digging reference in verse 4. The mud surface was uh, dug out so that they could actually bring this friend down. And then when they successfully opened the roof and lowered their friend to Jesus, this is the result. The result is a miraculous transformation. It is a miraculous transformation. Such a personal transformation is only possible in the presence of Jesus. In verse 5, we read Jesus meeting his greatest need, the forgiveness of his sins, which is his spiritual need. And in verse 12, we see Jesus also meeting his physical need through a miraculous healing. Now, it was a common understanding in those days that when people had infirmities, it was, uh, it was an understanding that it was either a result of their sin or a sin of their ancestors. And the physical suffering then was a result of God's divine discipline. The text doesn't tell us whether or not the paralytic's case was a result of his sin, since we don't know if he was repentant or not, but rather Jesus responds to the faith of his four friends. But there is a link between the forgiveness of sins and the physical healing here. And what it points to is the holistic nature of Jesus' healing ministry. The root cause for all disease, illness, and even our eventual death is sin. Though the paralytic may have never been cured of his, uh, he may have been cured of his paralysis, the greater cure that he received that day was the forgiveness of sins. In the decision of the four friends, we see their desperate desire to get his friend to Jesus. And the only, it is only in the presence of Jesus that healing and forgiveness is found. Now, I do need to point out a couple of key words here that rhyme in alliteration in the original language. And Mark uses uh, these two words to contrast a theme. Brief reminder of what an alliteration is. Attention, alliteration is alarming, alluring, and addicting. Attended, unattended children 
will be given caffeine and a corgi puppy. Right? I don't always use alliteration, but when I do, it's cool, classy, and casual. Are you with me? Following me? Right? Now back to Mark. The word for house is oikos, and the word for the crowd is oklos. The words rhyme, and both start with the same letter in this alliteration. But these words serve as a contrasting theme. You see, just because a person is drawing near to Jesus, particularly in proximity to his house, oikos, it doesn't necessarily result in saving faith. Because the crowd, oklos, in the crowd we have some who oppose Jesus. Well, who are they? Join me in verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was why they were this is that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Notice here in this passage, we see the decision of the scribes. And this is the second point in your outline. And their decision is the rejection of Jesus. It is a rejection of Jesus. Now, who were the scribes? They were not just copyists of the Old Testament or the Torah. One who held the Jewish office of a scribe was an expert in the law. They, uh, they were uh, professors in some sense who received extensive education. They were also teachers of the Old Testament uh, who were honored by the title rabbi, meaning my great one or my master. And there were also legal jurists or civil lawyers, if you will, capable of fi making binding decisions on the interpretation of the Old Testament. The first seats in the synagogues were reserved for scribes, and people rose to their feet when they entered the room. Now, some of you who served in the military, uh, you know that the military does something similar. When a co commanding officer walks into a room, the room is called to attention, and everybody rises to their feet, right? And until the, the commander gives the order, you know, as you were, or carry on, or do some push-ups, you stand, you remain standing. Okay? Well, it was like that for the scribes, that type of honor. So scribe was a highly respected office with extensive authority during that time as they exercised the role of a professor, a teacher, and a lawyer, all wrapped into one office. Now, the first time we see Jesus encountering the scribes is in Mark 1.22. And we read that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, who were the scribes. And here we get a hint of their opposition uh, as their authority is challenged by Jesus' authority. Well, here we see the scribes again in Jesus' home in chapter 2. And their opposition is not going to get any better. They're literally dialoguing in their hearts as their commitment to Jesus grows. Their commitment to oppose Jesus continues to grow. Their decision to oppose him was a carefully calculated one and a life-changing decision. One which will take them down the road to the point of no return as we will see them commit the 
unforgivable sin in a later chapter in Mark. And the result we see in their decision is a hardened heart. We see the hardened hearts of the, of the, the scribes. You can sense the tone of their anger in verse 7 as they charge Jesus of blasphemy, which is no small matter, but one that carried the death sentence by stoning. They had reasoned in their hearts and made a deliberate commitment to oppose Jesus as their, as their hearts hardened to eventually crucify this messianic king. And Jesus, in his divine nature, he knew immediately the intent of their hearts. Well, after all, who can possibly forgive sins but God alone? Unless Jesus is truly God. See, certain heretical groups even today, like the Jehovah's Witness, they claim that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus was God. But they fail to see passages like this in the Bible. Here is one such case where, where Jesus claims to be able to do the only thing that God can do which is forgive sins. And he doesn't then make any excuses nor avoid the identity of his divine nature. So who is this man Jesus? And what does his decision say about who he is? Well, let's keep reading in verse 9. Jesus said this, he says, Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Notice the title used, uh, Jesus used for himself in verse 10, the Son of Man. Now, the New Testament uses several titles to describe Jesus. The most frequent title is the word Christ, okay, which is not his last name like Cho is my last name, but Christ is the office of the Hebrew title Messiah or the Anointed One. The two words uh, the two words Messiah and Christ are interchangeable. That is why you hear the, the phrases like uh, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Mark 8.29, Peter confesses, you are the Christ, which means you are the Messiah. Mark introduced his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, with the title Son of God, which simply means he is of God. But the title Son of Man Jesus used for himself here in chapter 2 verse 10 is a title that is loaded with major theological significance. The term can mean that one is simply born of a human and later in Mark it also denotes his humility and suffering. But here Jesus uses term the Son of Man to point out his authority. As we read earlier this morning as uh, Dell read for us from Daniel chapter 7, the title refers to the judge who in the final analysis will judge all mankind and will rule forever with peace and justice. Here are the words from Daniel's vision in Daniel 7.13. There before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, Jesus did not use the term here as a sign of humility, but he chose to show his divinity and his authority. This was the decision of Jesus and is the last point in your outline. His decision was to heal the paralytic, to heal the paralytic. Notice what Jesus called the paralytic in verse 5. He said, son or child. It is a term of endearment used to denote his authority. As a child would recognize their parental authority when called, the paralytic and the crowd also were to recognize Jesus' authority as their superior. The paralytic's healing was not just physical, but also spiritual. You see, the visible physical healing confirmed the invisible spiritual healing. Jesus healed the paralytic that they might know his authority to forgive his sin. And the result of his decision was a declaration of his divine authority. So who can possibly forgive sins? What man can forgive sins without committing blasphemy? Only the Son of God, who is truly the Son of Man. Jesus, the one and only Christ, is the only one who is able to forgive us. Jesus is the highest authority who alone can forgive sins. Jesus is the highest authority who alone can forgive your sins. This morning in our application, I want us to consider the three decisions that we saw and what it says about human condition and what it says about Jesus' authority. See, every one of us in here has a condition. Most of us have some form of physical deformity or infirmity from our decaying bodies to genetic defects, which we inherit. We may find some relief, though, through healing, through modern medicine or even surgical procedures. And that is thanks to God's work of common grace. And he may even miraculously heal your physical infirmities if he so wills. But we all have a spiritual infirmity, a condition called sin. See, we're born into a life of sin where we cannot help but sin and live in the state of condemnation before God. And as a result of our sin, we experience guilt. Regret, shame, remorse are all part of the experience of living in a life of sin. When we decide to distance ourselves from God and live the life of sin that we think is best for us. Even in our culture today, including our political leaders, will gladly affirm your sins to be good and even celebrate with you to live however you want to. Live the life you deserve. Free yourself by being true to your sinful desires. That is where freedom is found, by exploring your sins. But the scary part about living in sin is that your conscience will eventually believe the lies that your life of sin is acceptable and good. 
And over time, if you continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, your conscience will be seared, as Romans 1 talks about. And your ears will no longer be able to he hear the voice of the shepherd who calls you to come back into his presence. The moment you experience guilt and shame from your sins, do not harden your hearts like the scribes who rejected Jesus. But in that moment, draw closer to Jesus as the friends did with the paralytic. Determine to not run from God, but determine to run to him. A life lived in sexual sin, in premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, will all result in guilt. A life lived in addiction to substance, alcohol, drugs, gambling, and even pornography will all result in guilt. A life lived in idolatry of something that takes greater precedence in your life other than God. And even a life of self-worship in forms of gender reassignment procedures to hedonism is certain to result in guilt. When you begin to feel your soul bearing the weight of guilt and sin, you must do everything in your power to draw closer to Jesus, even if it means that you have to breach a hole in the wall or in the ceiling to get to him. Turn from the sins that result in shame and regret, and you turn to Jesus to receive your forgiveness. When you come to him with a, a truly repentant heart, a desire that you are going to turn from your sins and go to the Lord, you will not be met with frustration and anger from him, but he will gladly meet you with compassion as he met the paralytic and declare to you, child, your sins are forgiven. He was determined to go to the cross for his children. He decisively made that commitment to take our punishment so that he may have the authority on earth and heaven to say to you, your sins are forgiven. He is the Son of Man who has gone to the cross to bear your sin, who rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. And he is the Son of Man who will come again in great glory to judge the living and the dead. So, is there guilt in your life that you're struggling with? Is there sin in your past that haunts you and you still wrestle with its consequences today? Then I urge you to come to the cross of Christ where the forgiveness of sin accomplished through the blood shed on your behalf is made yours by faith. Jesus is the highest authority on heaven and on earth who alone can remove your guilt and forgive your sins. So draw near to him in your sins. Life is full of calculated decisions, some of which are life-changing. These decisions include who we marry and what we consume on the internet. Many of these decisions will either bring us closer to God or take us away from Him. And the four friends made the decision to draw as close to Jesus as possible, and the result was a miraculous transformation, a holistic healing of their friend both physically and spiritually. The scribes whose authority was threatened by Jesus decided to reject him and resulted in the hardening of their hearts. And in the decision of Jesus, we saw 
the Son of Man, who declared his divine authority through the forgiveness of sins by miraculous healing. It is the desire of God that whoever hears this message of the gospel draw near to Jesus to receive forgiveness and the eternal life in Christ. So come to him today to find forgiveness for your sins and lay your burdens down at his feet. And only there in his presence will you find true healing for your souls. Let's pray. I invite you to come to him to cast your sins and burdens down at his feet of his throne as we reflect in silence. And in a moment, I will close us in prayer. 